Did you catch last week's episode of Lost? Um, if you're not a fan of the show, that's okay. We don't judge you here. Um, <laughs> sinners are welcome. You can still <laughs> repent. Um, but, but I'm a fan of the show. But one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to watch TV more discriminately. So usually the way Americans and me in particular watch TV is we sort of sit like, like Hurley at a buffet. Uh, if you don't get that, that's also because you don't watch Lost and that's your fault. Um, but, but you just sort of swallow everything in. You just eat till you can't feel anything anymore and you don't think, you don't taste anything, you don't chew, you just swallow it all in. That's sort of how we sit before the TV. So I'm purposely trying to at least be intentional and thoughtful and have my mind engaged as I let this stuff in, uh, choosing what I do and don't. But, but I'm not talking about TV. But anyway, so I think about the show uh, often, and, or when I watch it at least, and try to chew on it. And what is it trying to communicate to us? And it, particularly, this week's episode allows you to do that because there was a, a religious bent to the show. There was a lot of theology, if you will, from the show. So, so in a sense, it's like Lost is the loudest pulpit in America, and it's speaking theology. So you've got to sort of discern what it's saying. So in the show, at least this week, one of the things, whether you're in the show or not, you've got this guy named Jacob who is this good God-like figure, and then you've got this other guy who's a, a man dressed in black. You don't know him, but he sort of represents darkness. So you've got this battle sort of between God and the devil. And, and what the show sort of spoke, and there's lots of things you could think about this week, but, but one of the things is that the highest aim of this contest between good and evil, the, the purpose or pursuit of Jacob, if you will, is sort of to prove that man is good, that man won't go astray, that given the right conditions, he'll choose what's right. And so this constant, this contest between the two is set up, and there's, there's really one ultimate purpose. It's to make much of us, to show us to be important, to show us to be good. Everything he's doing in the show is sort of with one thing in mind, to make much of us. All right, so if you don't believe a God or if there is a God, let's just be honest, we like that idea of a God. That if there is a God, that everything he's doing, all his purposes are aimed at us. We're the highest goal. Everything he's doing is, is towards us. We really like that idea, right? Everything about this whole thing is to make much of us. All right, so, but that's secular, we'll call it. That's worldly, whatever, that's outside. Let, let's talk about what happens in the church. So how is it wired here? I'll give you an example. Um, several years ago, there was a song written called Above All. Maybe you know it. Maybe you've sung it. I've sung it several times. Churches everywhere sing it. Uh, it's this song that has these great lines and lyrics about how God is above all. He's above all powers and above all created things. Before the world he is, he is above all. And then the song moves into this chorus where it sings about the crucifixion of Jesus in particular, which is obviously in our series, Our Concern. And it, and it says these lines, Crucified, laid behind a stone, you lived and died, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled to the ground. You took the fall and you thought of me above all. So those are the lines. That, that Christ's principal concern, his highest thought, his chief thought on the cross through the crucifixion is aimed at us, is me, above all. 
And, and pastors have rightly, and churches have rightly struggled with that last line to think through, is that right? And it's not a question of semantics or, or needing to be picky, but the idea of above all, not, not is Christ's thought on the cross us, but is it above all? Is it chief? Is it paramount? Is it supreme? Is it final, ultimate in the aim of God, that the purpose of the cross was Christ thinking of me above all? And so again, if we're honest, we're not talking about them out there. If we're honest even in here, we're really comforted by the thought of a God who all that he's doing, he's doing ultimately for us. That we're the, the end, we're the goal, we're the prize, we're the treasure. So that's what I want us to think through today. What I want us to try and get our minds around today is, am I, are you, are we the center of God's universe? What's at the center of God's universe? Am I, are you, are we at the center of God's universe? Are we his supreme pleasure? Are we his greatest treasure? Are we his principal concern? Are we his highest affection? Are we uppermost in his thoughts? Are we his greatest, grandest delight? Does all that God does revolve ultimately, finally, around us? Is it solely, and my words are, are important today, so, so hang with them. Are they solely, or ultimately, or finally, or chiefly, or principally, or supremely about us? And, and we'll narrow that question a bit to fit our concern in particular, namely as it pertains to Christ crucified. That's our sermon series. Is the cross ultimately, finally, chiefly, supremely, finally about us? Is it aimed ultimately at us, or is it something else? Above all, is it us, or is it something else? That's what I want us to try and think through today. Let me pray and ask God for his help as we do that, and then we'll try and answer that question together. Let's pray. Father, I am particularly aware of my smallness and my inability to communicate well this truth, but we do see it in your scripture and believe it to be true. So we pray, I pray, that you by your Holy Spirit would come and assist. Please let my words be clear. Anything that would cause your people to stumble upon, I pray you would take it out, remove it. I submit myself even now to the power of your Holy Spirit to speak through me what you want said. And I ask you even to speak to our hearts a better sermon to preach to our hearts truth better than my words are able to communicate. I pray that the Holy Spirit would land onto our hearts truth from on high. And I pray for our minds that you would help us to think through these things, uh, difficult things, and to think through them well. And, and so let there be clarity and understanding. But the problem may not even finally rest in our minds, but in our hearts, so that once we've understood, please break down every defensiveness so that we might receive your word humbly and submit to it. Do not let us be people who stand over your word, but stand under it and are broken by it. Show to us the weight and the glory of God and his worth today. Humble us rightly, exalt yourself highly, and let it all result in your glory and our good. <clears throat> this is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so what's the end goal? What's the destination? That's sort of what we're at. All that God does, where is it aimed? And, and even specifically, the cross, where is it finally heading to? As sort of a first step towards that answer, I want to sort of walk you through some scripture. I want to walk you through what God has done in the world as revealed in the scriptures. Sort of walk you through some redemptive revelation, we'll call it. So when the Bible starts in Genesis, it kicks off with the story of the creation. You've got this God who is triune, who has existed always from eternity past, and he creates. He creates human beings. He creates the world. And so one of our concerns is, why does he do that? What's he after? What's his ultimate goal? What's his ultimate aim? Isaiah 43, verse 7. I'm going to read you this verse. Hear it. Isaiah is reflecting on God's creation of his people, and he begins to comment on why God has done what he's done. This is what he says. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created for glory my glory. So what God is saying is that the whole of creation, everything that he's done in the world was done ultimately, finally, what's the for? What's the because? For my glory. So God is saying, I made man who is called image bearers, made in the image and likeness of God. I made them so that they would image me in the world so that the whole world might be a reflection of my glory, how great I am. And you see this language throughout the Psalms that all of creation is, is swept up into this enterprise that the hills dance and the mountains leap and the trees lift their hands and the birds fly. The angels sing and all of it is unto, directed towards the glory of God. I created for my glory. All right, so you keep following the story. God has created human beings. He calls this one man in particular, Abram, makes him into a nation. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be your God. And this nation finds itself in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, in slavery, in Egypt, in bondage. And so God purposes to redeem this people like a million slaves. They don't have a spear. They don't have a sword. They don't have a bow and arrow, nothing. Yet without raising a finger of their own, God is going to walk them out of the most powerful nation on the planet. Walk them out from the most powerful army in the world, and they're not going to do a thing. And this scene, this exodus, is going to become the paradigm for how God will save throughout the Bible. That every time he does it, he's going to take a powerless people, and he's going to deliver them. Through no work of their own, he's going to save them. So if you know the story, you know that they walk out of Egypt and God brings them to the Red Sea. And there at the sea, it's like this epic moment, this, this, this huge moment where you've got the sea in front of them. Pharaoh's changed his mind and now he wants to get them back or kill them. So they, the, the Pharaoh is barreling down behind them. Mountains on every side, they're done. They're dead. But you know the story. God, it says, from heaven sort of breathed from his nostrils. Breath split the waters in half. And this people walks safely through. And then God allows the enemy to chase behind them and the waters collapse and it becomes their watery grave. Okay, Psalm 106 comments looking back on the Exodus. And, and the psalmist is trying to speak of what God does and why he does it. And listen to what he says. He recounts the Red Sea. Yet he says, 
He rebuked the Red Sea. This is Psalm 106, 9. And it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Okay? So in great love, in great mercy, God delivers his people. Why? Listen to what it says. Verse 8. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So tell us, psalmist, why did God do that? Why did he blow back the waters? Why did he set this people free and redeem them? He did it so that he might make his name known and his power, mighty power, known. So what the Bible is saying is God did all that he did so that everybody would sing and know of his might. God's saying, I, I rescued Israel so that all the nations might say, how great is God? So that even 4,000, 6,000 years later, you would say, can you imagine how great and how powerful and how mighty God is? All that he's doing, creation, the Red Sea, for his glory. All right, keep going. As you keep going in the story, this people are now in the wilderness and they keep sinning against God. They keep rejecting God and God in his mercy stays with them, is faithful to them. God gives them judges to rule over them. And then you get to the lifetime of this man named Samuel. And, and they basically say to Samuel, listen, we're looking around. All the other nations have kings. We want a king. Give us a king. And you've got to read the story to know what a treacherous request that is. Because till this point, who's their king? God is. Unlike any other nation on the earth, every other nation has a man on the throne. Israel's the only nation that has God as their king. God's the king that rides out in battle in front of them, slays their enemies. God is their king, and yet they say, take him off the throne. We want a man. We want a king. So you can imagine, what would any king do if his people form a mutiny against him, try to replace him? He wipes them out. He crushes the rebellion. He crushes the mutiny. But, but this God, this God, Samuel goes to God and says, I'm grieved. And Samuel says, it's not you they've rejected. It's me. Give them what they want. But the people begin to sense of their sin and what they've done and what's God going to do to them. I mean, if a human king is going to wipe out rebels, what is God going to do? And so they plead with Samuel, listen, pray and ask God that he would not forsake us. And listen to what Samuel says. 1 Samuel 12, verses 19 to 23. I'll read you one verse. For the Lord will not forsake his people. So Samuel's comforting the people and he's saying, listen, God's not going to forsake you. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So Samuel, why is it that God's not going to let us go and forsake us? For his name's sake. So that the rest of the nations might not be able to say, look at this God that saved them but couldn't bring them all the way through. I will not let my name be dragged in the mud. For my name's sake, I'm going to continue to spare you. All right, so the story of the kings goes through, and it's no better. You've got Saul and then David and his sons, and it's a complete mess. The people keep rejecting God, sinning against God, until God finally lets their enemies take them over. You've got Israel that's sort of divided into two kingdoms. Assyria comes and takes some of it. Babylon, this other country, comes and takes some of it. God's people are now out of the land. They're judged. They're in exile. And from these foreign lands, they cry out to God saying, redeem us, bring us back, save us. And God does. 
And God promises and he sends prophets saying, I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to redeem you. I love you. I'm going to still be merciful to you. But ultimately, finally, why? Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah 48, verse 9 through 11. This is what God says. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Why is God going to redeem this people? He loves them. But ultimately, it's for his name's sake. He's not going to let the nations laugh at him. He will do it for his name's sake so that his praise might be known everywhere of what a great and glorious and beautiful God he is. And, and literally, we could keep going throughout all the scriptures. But, but what I'm hoping you get, and you may be already feeling the weight of it, is everything God is doing, he does ultimately for his own glory. He does ultimately so that his brilliance and his perfections and his beauty and his worth and his majesty might be known, might be praised, might be sung about, might fill the earth as waters fill the sea, Everything God does, He does principally for His own glory. All right, we'll talk about that in a second, but I want you to see that this same thing is in play when you talk about Christ crucified. That's our concern. Over these weeks, we're talking through why did Jesus Christ die? What happened when He did? I want to show you. Verse, look at John 12, the passage that Anne read for us. Today is the day that the church celebrates as Palm Sunday, so I'll walk you through some of the story. In John 12, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the last time. He enters into the city and the people cut off the palm branches and they wave them before him and they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And John 12, verse 16, it says, His disciples didn't understand these things, but when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John saying, listen, it wasn't until he was glorified that the disciples put all these things together, the prophecy from Zechariah about the donkey into Jerusalem and, and what was being done. It wasn't until he was glorified that they got it. When's Jesus' hour of glory? Well, throughout John's gospel, Jesus is glorified through the cross. Over and over again, you're going to see in John's gospel that the hour of Jesus' death is actually the hour of his glory. He comes to that hour, and that hour is for the purpose of the glory of God. You'll see this clearer in verse 27 and 28. Jesus has now entered Jerusalem. The hour of his death is now upon him. The weight of his, it is beginning to fill him. This is what he says. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So here's what John's gospel is telling us. Jesus gets into Jerusalem, he sees the hour upon him, and his soul begins to become troubled, and he says, Father, what am I going to say, save me from this hour? No, it's for this hour that I came. Father, glorify your name. And the Father shouts back, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The purpose of this hour is the glory of the Father. 
The ultimate purpose of even this hour that Jesus comes to is to the glory of the Father. So that the final, chief, principle, supreme, ultimate aim of even the cross is to glorify God. So here's what we're saying. All that God does, from creation to redemption to salvation to the crucifixion, all that He does, He does ultimately, supremely, for His own glory, even and including Christ crucified. That Christ was crucified chiefly, supremely, principally, finally, above all, for God's glory. To be sure, the cross does show to us the infinite love of God, but we are not the end nor the center of God's work on the cross. Hear that. I'm going to try and summarize everything we're saying by this. Here's the reason for all of this. It's because the center of God's universe is God. It's because the center of God's universe is God. The chief delight of God's heart is Himself. The highest treasure and the uppermost thought and God's greatest affection is in Himself and for Himself. God is most satisfied by Himself. God is most pleased in Himself. God is most glorified Himself. All that God does, His ultimate goal is for His own glory. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. There is no one who seeks God's glory more than God does. No one who delights in God more than God does. No one who treasures God more than God does. No one who seeks to glorify God more than God does. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. God is completely satisfied, delighted with Himself. And all that He does is for His own glory. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Because um, when I first started reading through the scriptures and, and reading writings by men like John Piper, uh, which I would recommend to you on this topic, uh, I really wrestled and struggled with a great deal of this. And I would imagine if you're following me, you, you would wrestle and struggle too. Uh, that, that this would bother you for a bunch of reasons and be difficult for you to wrap your mind around. So let me try and walk through just a few of them that were for me and maybe it will be uh, easier for you to, to grasp these things and to begin this journey of trying to understand that. Uh, this bothers us for a few reasons. Uh, one, it bothers us because we've been told something different our whole lives. You, you've been told something different your whole life, and it's very difficult to shift the paradigm. I mean, it'd it be like the whole world saying the earth is the center, the earth is the center, the earth is the center, and Copernicus and all these other guys coming and saying, no, 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 the sun is the center. And all the upheaval that went on then is now, maybe even now, taking place in your own heart. Because there's a war being waged, which is you are now feeling the weight of you being displaced from the center and moved to the side, and something else, namely God, taking center place. If you feel the fight within your own heart, you get how we want center stage. 
And, and it, it offends us to say that God should be there. Right? We, we struggle with it because in the church you've been told your whole life, God loves you more than anything else. And again, I'm not playing semantics. In a sense, He does. He loves you. But, but not more than He is out for His own glory. And that's new and that's hard. Right? You, you've been told, especially if you didn't grow up in the church, if you grew up in the world, you've been told your whole life that the aim of everything is to build your self-esteem. Every project, every endeavor is to get you to see how wonderful and worthy and beautiful you are and to fill you up with grand thoughts of yourself. And this goes right against that grain. And you struggle with it. And you begin to feel the fight in your own soul that something else, even God, is taking center stage. It, it sort of shocks us to be displaced from the center. And it's also because we've got this inadequate view of God, of who He is. Uh, our understanding is God is sort of like that girl from Jerry Maguire, right? Who goes, you complete me, right? So God's sort of in the universe and he was sort of deficient and he was lacking until you completed him, right? You've heard that you've got a God-sized hole in your heart and only God can fill it. That's right. But we've projected that onto God to say God has a man-sized hole in his heart and only you and I could complete him and fill him. That is not the Bible's God. God was and is and forever will be completely sufficient within himself. Nothing you do enhances God. He is always and will be forever and was complete. Within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he enjoyed community forever so that there was no longing in his heart that was satisfied now by you. He has always been fully satisfied in who he is always been happy, never more happy because of anything we do. He is completely sufficient in himself. And so it's hard. It's hard for us to be shifted from the center. It's, it's also hard, not because of the light that this sheds on us, but, but what we think this light sheds on God. So here's what I mean. If God is the most God-centered being in the universe, that, that is a struggle to us because it makes God seem vain. It, it makes him seem like an egomaniac. Like, it, it makes it look ugly. You know, I know, of how ugly it is when people are self-absorbed. We hate show-offs that are all about themselves. We hate rich people who flaunt their wealth. We hate pretty people who flaunt their beauty. We hate smart people who flaunt their degrees. We hate show-offs. We sense how ugly it is when someone is egotistical. And yet God is the one being on, in the universe for whom that does not apply. God is the one being in the universe for whom exalting himself is right and necessary and loving. God is the one being in the universe for whom exalting himself, putting himself to you as the greatest being in the world, is both right and and good and loving. You see, every box you have doesn't fit for God. He is outside our categories. He truly is other and separate and removed. So it's necessary. It's right and good and necessary. It's necessary for God to be God-centered. Let me tell you why. Because if God were not God-centered, God would be an idolater, and he's not. So what do I mean? What's idolatry? 
Idolatry is taking anything and putting it in the place of God, right? So taking anything and putting it in the place of God and saying to that thing, you're what I'm about, you're what's going to satisfy me, you're my pleasure, everything I am is for you. That's what idolatry is. And we do it in hundreds of ways. We've got food or we've got sex or we've got family or success or wealth. And we take all these things and we put them in the center and we go, this is what I'm about. This is what's going to satisfy me. This is what would be best. If God were to take anything and put it at center, that'd be idolatry. Because the only thing that can be at the center is God. And, and, and one pastor put it like this. It's like God is stuck with being the most beautiful, glorious, satisfying, delightful, wonderful being. And he's got nowhere else to turn. He's got no one else to give credit to. He's got no one else to love higher than himself. He is stuck with being beautiful, with being majestic, with being awesome, with being happy. And he's got nothing else grander to think upon, to be about than himself. So in a few minutes after I preach, we're going to sing this song called, It's All About You, Jesus. It's not about me. It's all for you, for your glory, your fame. So here's my question. Is Jesus in heaven singing a different song? Right? So when I sing on the earth, it's all about you, Jesus. It's for your glory, your fame. Is Jesus in heaven singing? And it's all about you, Ajay. It's, it's all for you. And all this is done for you. Or is Jesus in heaven going, that's right. Amen. That's right. Is he receiving all of that worship or somehow reflecting it back to something else? God is the most glorious, most satisfying, the only being. There is none higher, none greater, none more glorious than him. It's not only necessary, but what I want you to see is it's also loving. For God to exalt himself is actually loving to us, right? For anyone else to come in and say, look at me, consider my beauty, consider my perfections is a horrible thing. For God to do it, it's a loving thing. Here's why. Because God in doing that is drawing you to that which will satisfy you most fully forever. He is giving you what is best for you. If God were to give you something but deny himself, he would be denying you what's best for your soul. If he gave you health, if he gave you a car, if he gave you wealth, if he gave you success, if he gave you a wife, if he gave you family, and, and held himself back, he'd be robbing you of the one thing that would finally and most fully satisfy. He'd be holding back from you the one thing you were created for. You were be made to be satisfied in God. Nothing else can take its place. And if he were to give you anything else but himself... He would hate you, not love you. The most loving thing God can do is to call you to himself, to say, look at me, stare at me, worship me, because in doing so, that's actually what's best for you. That's actually what satisfies you finally, fully, and forever. We think that love is making much of us. It's not. Love is giving you what will satisfy you forever. And that's God. The most loving thing he can do is to give us himself. That's why heaven will not be, it's in that book that we're giving away for free, so read it. It's why heaven will not be a place of mirrors where you get to forever stare at yourself. It's why what heaven is, is God finally gives you eyes to see God in all his glory. 
the most loving thing Christ can do for you is to give you eyes to see himself and to be satisfied in him, to behold his glory. This is why in John 17, as we think through this final week of Jesus' life, John 17, Jesus is praying one last prayer before he goes to the cross for us. And this is what he prays. Hear this. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, that's you, he's praying for all his disciples, that they also, whom you have given me, may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Hear what Jesus just prayed. Jesus says, Father, my request for you, for you, for them, is that they may be where I am so that they could see my glory. You think of that. If, if I said that, you would throw me out. If I said, listen, my one prayer for you is that you would all behold my glory and you would say how beautiful and worthy and wonderful I am, you would literally throw me out. For anyone to say that is a horrible evil. But for Christ to say that is the most loving sentence in the world. Father, my prayer is that they would be where I am so that forever they would see my glory. I heard this, this sermon by John Piper, and he, and he talked about this one section from John 11. So John 11 is the story of Lazarus dying. If you don't know the scripture, you can read it in John 11. It's the story of this good friend of Jesus named Lazarus dying. He's got a brother, a sister, two sisters, Martha and Mary. And, and John 11 begins with, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And so the story is that Martha and Mary find their brother sick and they cry out, hey, could you come, Jesus, could you come? Because if you do, you could save him. And then the story goes that Jesus says his death will not finally lead to death. It will be for my glory. So you've got those words. Jesus loves this family. He loves Lazarus. He loves Martha. He loves Mary. But he's also going to do this for his glory. And then the verse says this, Jesus loved them. And then it says, so... He stayed back a few more days. So you get that. Let that register. Jesus loved this family, so he stayed back and he let them die. Let him die. Because he's going to be glorified. So, so follow this. Jesus loves Mary. Jesus loves Martha. Jesus loves Lazarus. And he, so he stayed back, let Lazarus die, let the sisters weep, so that he would be glorified. So that literally, I let you die so that everyone would know I'm great and I'm awesome. How is that loving? It's because it is better for Lazarus to die four days dead and for his sisters to weep and see Jesus' glory than for them to be healthy without it. It is better, the most loving thing Jesus could do was to give them a vision of his glory. Listen, in your life, this is intensely practical. In your life, it is better to suffer and see Jesus' glory than to be healthy and not. It is better for cancer to come to my body and me to see Christ's glory. That would be more loving than for me to be healthy my whole life and never see him. The most loving thing Christ can do is for us to see his glory. Because in seeing that, we are finally and fully and forever satisfied. God is for his own glory, and that is both necessary and loving and good. So I want to I end with saying this. 
I'm saying all this to you at great risk. So here's what I mean. I feel like over these weeks, as we've considered Christ's cross, for many of you, it has become more beautiful than it has ever been. And I'm, I sincerely thank God for the grace that he's showing us that the cross is becoming beautiful to us. We are experiencing as a church Jesus' love in ways that we didn't. We're sensing what he's done for us in ways that we had not maybe considered before. And the cross is becoming all the more beautiful. I'm going to blow Shibu's spot. Last week, as we were singing, Shibu was saying that after considering this truth and letting it sink in, he wanted to shout hallelujah as loud as Dennis, right? <laughs> so, so I get that what's happening is you're, we're beginning to see, right? And I'm saying this at the risk of the cross somehow becoming less lovely for you. Because there might be a, a war in your heart that's saying, listen, Ajay, just tell me Jesus died for me and end it there. Leave it alone. Don't add for his glory because it somehow spoils it. If you shift the end of the cross from being me to God, it somehow ruins it. And, and I, I'm taking the risk because it's too important. Because if we don't say this, then all we'll do is we'll let this series confirm and endorse for you your own love for yourself. You'll just go on saying, even God died to get me, rather than God died to get me so I could glorify him forever. The cross will either end to being Christ died to make much of us, or Christ died to redeem us so we could forever enjoy making much of him. So that we would enjoy forever God and be satisfied in God and have our souls fed and our, our thirst removed and enjoy God forever. That we would enjoy making much of God forever. And, and here's what I want you to remember. All of this would be a terrifying thought if it were not for the cross. So what I mean is, if you really have an all-powerful God in the heavens, who's going to do whatever it costs, everything for his own glory, if you leave it there, some of you will walk away petrified of this God. Because you're now going to be in a place of fear going, who knows what he's going to do because he's just going to do it all for his glory, which is why you've got to remember the cross, which is why you've got to remember the nature of this God. This is not a God who stepped on your back to bring glory to himself. This is a God who let his back be stepped on to bring glory to himself. He didn't do it at your expense. He did it at great cost and expense to himself. He gave up his life to redeem you so that you could be swept up into glorifying him and finding joy for your own souls. That's the God you serve. A God who all things, like a mighty river, is going to his glory, everything, but along the way swept you up adopted you into his family, seated you in the heavenly places so that you might enjoy God forever. That's the nature of the God that you have. A God who is going to get glory in all that he does, but it's going to work out simultaneously for your good. Only God would be that great and that glorious to pull that off. Everything is going to be for his glory, and that everything is going to include your good to all who believe. So here's what I want to end with, and I've already said I'm going to end twice, so I'll end. Um, here's the thought I want you to just consider even as we move on in this service. 
If the highest pursuit of God is His glory, then that should affect how you live your life. So here's what I mean. As soon as we're done, we're now going to sing. And that means that when we sing, we're glorifying God. You've been taught that since you were kids. And that when we glorify God, even through our singing, you are literally being swept up into the pursuit that is chief in God's own heart. You're doing that which is literally the most important thing in the universe. You're participating in the thing that God himself is doing in the world. There's literally nothing greater you could do than to glorify God. You're being swept up into the very thing that is central to God, into the very thing God is doing in the world when you glorify Him. Right? I don't know about you, but the nightmare of my life would be to do things that are irrelevant or unimportant or insignificant. I don't want to look back on my life and and think that I wasted it. I so badly want my life to be about things that matter. And there is for your life literally nothing higher than to be involved in the pursuit of glorifying God. So that even as we sing, we literally are getting involved in the thing that is closest to God's heart, namely glorifying Him. So that when we husband or our wives or when we parent and do those things in a way that glorifies God, we're literally caught up into the highest enterprise we could possibly be involved in. When we work and work in a way that glorifies God, We're doing the thing that is highest, that is ultimate in God's heart and mind. And the beauty of all of that is that doing that actually brings us joy, greater satisfaction than anything we could possibly imagine. So Christ was crucified for God's glory and our joy. Amen. Let's pray.